Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shawley. Coming up on today's episode, a really fascinating conversation with Catherine Phil. She's the Times' diplomatic correspondent. In recent years, she's spent more of her time in London, whining and dining the ambassadors. Now, though, she's on the front line. She's been in Ukraine now for three weeks, having arrived just before the Russian invasion began. It's a conversation less actually about the geopolitical situation and more about the work of being a war reporter. What do you make sure you pack? What she already run out of? And how does she stay safe? So a fascinating conversation coming up. First, though, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. And on a Tuesday, it must be... Oh, we've not got the jingle. We've not got the jingle. I'll just have to sing it myself. The, the Cerberus of the... the um, the Oh, anyway, they're here. It's Daniel Finkelstein. Morning, Daddy. Good morning. <laughs> Ah, David Ivanovich. Good morning, David. Yeah, the, the Cerberus on the square of the High Potter News is equal to, yeah. <laughs> Aren't we the Panglossian of, we're the Panglossian of uh, Panopticons or something? <laughs> it's amazing. We must have listened to that, what, a hundred times now? And we still... Yeah, yeah still I remember saying still... to Richard Curtis, I don't know why you've included how difficult it was to get all the Beatles lyrics. If you're a Beatles fan, you'd know all the lyrics. And he said, you try it. And when I did, it was really difficult, considering how many times I'd heard all those songs. I couldn't actually remember any of the words. I had that exactly that at the weekend. I was in a car with a mate, and we I can't believe we got on to, oh, I'll tell you who we like. And we kept putting songs on, and I was convinced I knew all the words. And I, I mean, it didn't stop me joining in heartily, but, um, I, yeah, <laughs> I, there were lots of songs I didn't have the words to. Anyway, what, well, there is there is on. one bit I always remember though, Matt. So we can do it, and it's this. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. We'll, we'll good, put you it? down to do that when when Finkelvich go on tour and you do the jingle live. You can do the uh, you can do the lines roar. Actually, David, which is not unlike the crocodiles roar from uh, on the record and the it on is the record very episode. Like. Of the, uh, of the Sunday shows is this Friday. So David will explain why there was a crocodile on the opening credits or on the record. Uh, very good. Right, let's... T- <laughs> should we talk about the news? Um, uh, the I'm quite interested in what you make of Britain's humanitarian response to the refugee crisis. Uh, on Friday, we'd processed 50 visas. It's now up to 300. Uh, is this a world-beating response, David? I, I, I'm really, I, I'm very interested in this. And, and let me just say uh, right at the beginning that um, the, uh, Ukrainian government has made it pretty clear that there are plenty of things they're grateful to the British government for, and I'm not going to try and uh, pass over that. 
But it does seem to me that the pitiful nature of our response to the refugee situation in Ukraine is of a piece with our pitiful response to refugee um, uh, crises going back quite some way, actually. And they're and they're not really to do with whether or not the Home Office is geared up to do something speedily, I don't think. And this applies to almost all governments, and it applies to almost all our modern history, actually. Our, mine and Danny's presence in these studios notwithstanding, which is that, by and large, British governments are tended to see refugees as an unwanted problem uh, uh, that they're going to have and have sought to... Uh, uh, and, and, and have sought to minimise the numbers of people coming in on that basis, really, or not to try and make it um, uh, easy for people to come in, whereas other countries have much more often stepped up to the plate, particularly in the modern era. I would agree with that. Um, uh, so my, my my view, David and I do have a divergence about immigration. Um, and, uh, you know, we can go in, into that. I don't think you can have a completely uncontrolled immigration policy. And if you have a controlled immigration policy, it involves you deciding you're going to say no to some people, despite the fact that individual cases may look... Um, very, uh, very worthy, or they may be even able to add uh, to the economy, for example. That having been said, one of the reasons why I believe in a controlled immigration policy is that you have to be able to respond to great emergencies, and few seem to me as obvious as this. You know, in some... Uh, periods in some crisis you can say well look this crisis is happening a very long way away why would it be Britain uh, who would be the, the, the country that would receive everybody in these circumstances that we can share our burden with the whole of the world and we can we can then decide whether our share has been reasonable. This isn't such a case. This is a case where something is happening in Europe uh, and our response is completely inadequate and um, you know it, it, it is it's it's very near to my heart because my father came from uh, Lviv and because he couldn't go back there because the Russians occupied it, he came to this country. That is the reason why I'm here. And so in these circumstances, there is a very direct relationship. And, and my grandfather said to my father, um, he thought it was possible the British would send him back to Lviv and in those circumstances he would mutiny and my father and he would almost certainly be killed and my father would have to look after my grandmother Uh, and my Mm. father regarded that as a very important moment in his uh, growing between a child and an adult so this is very direct to me David is completely correct um and it interplays interestingly with our more with our broader difference of opinion about immigration but on this one is one I, I want to talk precisely about it because actually I don't believe in completely uncontrolled immigration. Um, uh, you have to have a, a level of immigration controls. It's always the question about what level it should be. Uh, for instance, I'm not in favour of letting mass establish mass murderers into the country uh, and so on. And by uh, and by extension, there are a whole lot of uh, people who I wouldn't necessarily want to, uh, to have come into the country and so on. And you do have to have some form of limitations. But it's this attitude towards immigration, I think, which is which is problematic and it's this i regard immigration by and large as something we could have looked at as an opportunity which we made the best of 
because a lot of it was going to happen anyway, that we prepared for, that we said, this is the way in which we're going to integrate people. This is the way in which we're going to prepare for them, them being here. It's great that they're here. Instead, and this goes back to both governments, we have been taught to regard it as a perpetual problem and the people coming in as a perpetual problem and a difficulty, uh, et cetera. And we have treated it on that basis. And we've it's done both, the same. Those things. And we've done the same. Yeah, but by and large, it's an opportunity. And if you look at it as an opportunity, by, by, by the way, Danny, you make more of an opportunity of it. I think by and large it's both. That's the problem with it. So that is where we disagree. The the reason why it's awkward to have this conversation in this circumstances is that calculation is irrelevant, right? So some of the downsides to immigration, which I do think uh, exist, and I do think issues of, um, you know, how fast you accept people and integrate them into society are real issues. And I think we'd probably differ about degree on those fronts. But that, that disagreement is irrelevant in these circumstances you know because both of us are also against uh, bombing and people being killed in indiscriminate wars right in the middle of europe uh, and and uh, you know i'm a big one for saying there are questions of trade-offs here the trade-off is is a very simple one and it's not one that in my view there is much moral force in the argument for uh, for restriction so for all that i think that in many circumstances there are arguments uh, for the restriction of immigration and they they hold water because they're in some sort of tension and balance with those things you talk about, um, David, you know, the advantage to us economically and culturally uh, and the problems of integration, those things balancing against each other are quite hard. This isn't that hard uh, because the issues of uh, long-term Im- integration and its influence on communities and the cost are really secondary in the face of this massive that, that, humanitarian that- crisis. Now you're, d- 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 let's agree about that, but let's also admit that the way in which we regard the one is what bleeds through into our treatment of the other. That's the problem. Uh, in other words, having a negative view, by and large, of immigration, um, having a notion that you are, in some kind of sense, a fortress nation which keeps people out and you want to keep people out, if that's your essential idea, that feeds through into the way in which you treat things like the asylum system. You may say you want to exempt it from that. You don't want it to be affected by that psychology. But what I th- I think I see is that we are affected by that psychology. And consequently, that's why you can rock up to Calais as a Ukrainian refugee and find that there is no one there to try and deal with you, despite the government's claim that there are, and that you're supposed now to go to Paris instead to try and make your application uh, and so on. I, I'm, I'm sorry, Danny, I do think that is of a piece. You may be able to separate them off in some kind of way, but the chances are that you won't Yes, be but I can to. put this, you know, that, that, of course, you're not wrong in that, um, uh, because, because all these things, you know, in, in these things, unfortunately, lots of bad things are, are, are correct and lots of good things are correct and they have to balance against each other. You're not wrong about that, but at the same time... Uh, I could also argue, which I would, uh, that if you had a a system of uh, much less controlled immigration in general, you'd have much less generosity of spirit in these circumstances from the British people. Because what's fascinating about this incident is that the British people are very for uh, putting pressure on the government, I think, which the government will ultimately yield to, to have a more generous attitude. So, in fact, you know, I would argue it, it, it has, I think, you're correct, bled through into the government's attitude. But interestingly, I think the idea that in general we have controlled immigration, uh, but in these kind of emergency circumstances we remove those controls, are, is profoundly with the common sense of the British people and, um, 
and will ultimately be successful. And the reason the government is under pressure on this is because what it's doing is not in accord with the general uh, view of the British people. And my fear with your response, you know, putting this back to you, it's not that your point is wrong, but that that would also have political consequences. And in those circumstances, you think it would lead to greater generosity. Now, I, I think there's a very good case it would lead to the opposite, that um, people would not be able then to distinguish uh, between general uh, openness to immigration and these particular circumstances and would therefore uh, be less willing to open uh, the door in these circumstances. Uh, so, we, so uh, And I... And I would respond to that that the evidence, unfortunately, lies with me on this rather than with you. <laughs> unfortunately, um, unfortunately, <laughs> well, it's just it's just he, he takes no pleasure in telling. I suppose <laughs> the thing that, that strikes me about this is that you've got uh, clearly Pretty Patel, you know, drunk the Kool Aid on the vote leave. You can't be too hard on migrants, you know, line of attack and politically. Yeah, there was huge concern about immigration before Britain voted to leave the EU. Actually, that concern has dropped off markedly, despite for most of the part when it was falling, nothing changed because we were still arguing about how we left the EU. But there was a feeling that we'd got control, even if the numbers weren't changing. Fundamentally. Correct. I said the thing that the thing that's that the evidence, me... by the way, Matt. Sorry, that is the evidence that I put back to David and say that's why I think the evidence supports my view. I think that if people, <laughs> no, I think if people view the government as having some degree of control, they are willing to accept and um, that there are circumstances like this that require a large degree of generosity. And that view that uh, propelled part of the Brexit view, it was only one of the issues, but was certainly an important issue, uh, begins to reduce because people feel that they've got a sense of control. So I would argue that as a strong piece of evidence uh, for the view that I but took I against my, my, I suppose, actually, the, 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 if you followed that through, then it is possible to change public opinion on an issue without the f facts or evidence actually changing, that actually... Yeah, you know, the numbers in terms of the the number of people coming here wasn't changing, but there was a change of policies. And actually, I suppose my question then is actually instead of Pretty Patel or Boris Johnson throwing their hands up in the air and saying, "Well, people are very concerned about migration, so therefore we can't do anything," show some political leadership. Try and move well, the political debate. Change the it. public. Well, well, exactly. That's that's why I don't think Danny, the evidence is what Danny thinks it is. What changed was not that we got control in some kind of way, therefore it went away. What changed was that senior politicians stopped banging on all the time about how bad immigration was and started banging on about other things instead. Because what actually determines this, unfortunately, is not really numbers. It's what they call salience. It's people keeping on talking about it and making it a big issue so that people think it's a big issue. We, we, and we can see this all the time in the kind of cognitive dissonance of polls where people will say something like, we must reduce foreign aid down to a level which is about 10 times what it actually is now. But people do have that view, right? So they, they do want control of immigration and it's not an unreasonable view. That's where you and I uh, have a difference of opinion. And uh, it also... It there's, also a difference, there's a difference between control of immigration and no immigration. And yeah, nobody's suggesting that, that, that... Nobody's suggesting that no Ukrainian should come here. But to do it in a controlled, managed way where where there are people in the offices, the forms do exist, um, you know, there are uh, we're still not yet at the numbers. Yeah, let, 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 of, me, let me just uh, make sure that we uh, don't get to uh, we don't get a, uh, end up with a confusion. It's very important to say this is not an incident in which 
the normal calculations about um, immigration, which we are debating, apply. They don't apply in this case. All we've got to do it is do as like much the as... thinks it does. Well, I, I, I think insofar as they do think that, they are wrong. I suspect that it's all a bit less... Uh, well thought through and organised than that. But insofar as they do think that, I think they're misunderstanding public opinion, even of people who believe in controlled immigration, but they're also misunderstanding the moral imperative. Uh, well, I don't want our debate to get misunderstood. Uh, yeah. I, I am not saying under any circumstances that in these uh, that, that, that these considerations that David and I are discussing apply in these circumstances. I'm having, we're having a, a more general debate, but it's very important to make that clear. David. Um, well, actually, I think I, I think we set up. I mean, I, I don't want to reiterate the point that I actually don't believe in uncontrolled in, uh, immigration. I think that the set of attitudes that you build up over time towards something like this is what actually begins to dominate. And I think we have got to begin to try and change our sets of attitudes, because I think the next time you hit a refugee crisis, we will be no better than we have been the times before. And the fact is that even if the government significantly ups its act with regard to Ukrainian refugees, it will still be miles behind everybody else and it will still be miles behind for the same reasons that it was behind on on previous refugee crises it was just when we were just uh, talking i've just looked up on the yougov tracker on the on what people say are the most important issues facing the country immigration is now down to 21 percent so it's the fourth most important behind the environment uh, health and the economy and in fact, uh, what's that one? That is, uh, oh yeah, Bre Brexit. Brexit sort of tied with Brexit. And it's been up and down over the years, but um, uh, has clearly come down quite a lot. So yeah, I suppose it confirms. I'm sure that is evidence that confirms both of your arguments. <laughs> <laughs> Mine more than his, obviously. <laughs> Daniel Fink signed David Abonovich said, of course, you can read them in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box and subscribe now. Up next is my conversation with Catherine Phil. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about Work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hold up. 
You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly. Now, let's find out what it's like to be on the front line. Throughout the show, uh, you know, across uh, Times Radio, we have been keeping up to date on the situation in Ukraine, often checking in with our brilliant team of reporters there. But what we thought we'd do is have a slightly uh, longer conversation uh, with one of them, Catherine Philp, the Times' diplomatic correspondent, who's produced some of the most remarkable reporting on the ground for the Times since arriving in Ukraine uh, to cover the war. She's one of our most experienced foreign correspondents, reporting on numerous wars, including in Iraq and Afghanistan. She's now been in Ukraine for two weeks. We can go live to Catherine now, though. Morning, Catherine. Hi, Matt. How are you? I'm very good. More importantly, how are you? Where are you? How is it now? You've been there. Is it is it just coming up to two weeks? No, mate. It's three weeks. Don't is take it? a week off me. Times, time, <laughs> yeah. time flies when you're having whatever the opposite of fun is. Um, three was, weeks. Um, yeah, we ha- we we rushed into into country um, ahead of the invasion because, of course, there was this fear, uh, fear that airspace was going to close, and it did. Um, a couple of days before the Russians invaded. Um, so I've been in since before then. Um, and I am currently somewhere in western Ukraine, uh, making my way uh, towards the city of Lviv, where I'll be meeting up with um, a fresh new colleague, Richard Spencer, who will be coming into country. And Richard Spencer is normally Middle East uh, correspondent, so he's, he's joining as well as a bolts of the time team. Right, let's start right at the beginning. When you when it's decided that you're going into ukraine i mean three weeks ago we didn't it it was possible there was going to be an invasion but we weren't sure what do you take what's in your you've covered lots of conflicts before what do you grab with you what do you take what do you not take um you take you take body armor which uh, fortunately because of what i do i have at home um, in a cupboard, so I don't have to uh, go into the office to get it. Um, what I did have to go into the office uh, to fix up was um, a satellite phone, both for data, so for filing stories and uh, for speaking to people, a voice line. Um, and that's actually something that um, we haven't had to use a great deal uh, in recent warfare because it's uh, for these, you have to be somewhere very remote these days to be out of cell phone um, reach. Or you have to be in a conflict where there's a state actor who's actually seeking to cut off your communications. And we actually expected that to happen quite early if, um, if the Russians invaded Ukraine. And it, and it has not yet happened for reasons that I'm happy to expand on at a later stage if anyone is interested. Um, the other things you take are, um, in my case, not enough of anything because I didn't think I was going to be coming for quite this long. Um, I came in, Anthony Lloyd was already in Kiev, and I sort of came in to bolster him whilst the flights were still um, were still happening. At that time, we, both of us were kind of erring on the side of, uh, of the sentiment that you found in Ukraine, which we, we found it um, so unbelievable that Vladimir Putin would actually do this. But in a sense, we weren't entirely anticipating a full-blown invasion. So um, I did find myself quickly running short of some of the things I'd taken. Um, Like what? Explain what you mean. What what do you wish you'd have more of in the last three weeks? (laughs) Snacks, um, toiletries, medicines, those kind of things. 
um, yeah. which, you know, just everything, it, it was odd because the first couple of days we, we, we were in, uh, well, in fact, until the invasion happened, it was actually, it was quite easy to get that kind of thing. Um, and then suddenly it became incredibly difficult. So, um, so yeah, this, hopefully we're going to do a bit of resupply as well um, for the team who are remaining while we are in the west of the country where stuff is starting to come in through Poland. Um, there's a lot of aid. We've actually seen it on the road coming in. So um, stuff coming in to help Ukrainians. And that's, and that's from, you know, donations and funds that have maybe even been made by some of our, our listeners and readers. Well, in fact, so on the subject of, of, of money and food, uh, Jonathan in Battersea's messaging, how is Catherine getting access to money and food? And how strict are the bean counters at Times Towers, cutting her some slack in regard to receipts <laughs> for expenses? So how, so like you said, you yeah. get there for, you know, you get there three weeks ago thinking it might be a few days covering a diplomatic route. You end up in Kiev, uh, you know, as the as the invasion begins. Like everyone else, and we see on TV, people in Ukraine are hungry, uh, you know, struggling to get hold of supplies. Yeah. So how do you manage to do that, get hold of money and food? Yeah, so um, you can't get hold of money, really. All the ATM emptied quite some time ago. Um, I brought in about €10,000. So um, I did forget that when you were asking what I brought. That obviously yeah. was very important. Um but weirdly, um, again, and it's one of the sort of surreal uh, factors of or observations of having a war in, you know, in Europe is that uh, whilst I still could, whilst I could buy things, I was still going around paying with um, Apple Pay on my iPhone, um, and so I could buy things that way. In fact, I had a computer malfunction right at the beginning of the assignment, um, and I had to go and, and buy another um, another. Uh, laptop and i was able to use pay with that um pay for that with my iphone but now we are more or less down to cash yes um and for example uh where we're heading in lviv they will only take cash where where we're going which and, and it's somewhere that would usually have, have been able to pay uh you would pay by card but um i did uh, to be fair i did come out here um kind of knowing i was going to cover this rather than a diplomatic row i sort of came yeah. with with that hat on rather than my diplomatic one. But it does help having done that job to sort of marry the what's happening on the ground with, you know, all the international noise around it. So it's useful to have, have both those strengths. In fact, you have slightly answered this question, but I'm interested in, in, the, in the reason why. Andrew's message saying, do you take a laptop or can you write everything on your phone now? Because you, it sounds like you are carting a laptop around. Yeah, um, I mean, an extremist, I would have to. I I hate doing that, but I suppose it is doable. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's a lot it's a lot quicker on a on a laptop with a proper keyboard. Um, because I had to pick up a spare laptop here, and actually, it's the only one I've got functioning at the moment. It's actually um, it's got a Cyrillic uh, keyboard, so I can switch between um, English and obviously my fluent Russian and Ukrainian anytime I like. <laughs> well, that's that was going to be my next question. Actually, how do you who when you say we are travelling, who is in your your team, if you like, and and do you have the same translator with you all the time? How do you go yeah. out and and meet people? Well, I have to say this is this has been one of the most difficult parts of this assignment of covering this war for a lot of people. Um, I'm not the only journalist who lost their translator really as soon as the invasion happened um mine took his family out into the countryside um and so i was left 
left without one for some time. Um, and I got around for a few days um, by finding Ukrainians who spoke English and co-opting them. Um, I also, I had someone, a Ukrainian speaker on my phone that I could um, pass the phone to. There was a bit of remote, I mean, technology really helped me out in this gap. And then, um, and then picked up someone local again. But no, I haven't had someone consistently with me, which is unusual um, and quite frustrating because it is, it is nice to have um, the same person and work with them. I have had with me, but again, for the first time in a, in a 20-year uh uh, career of, of mostly of war reporting. I've actually had security with me. Um, so I have the lovely Alex and James, known as Jalex, uh, who are in the car with me right now. Um, and um, yeah, they're here really to sort of help um, make sure that we don't do anything too stupid. Well, that's, I mean, that's the thing that I, I it, it, is it them who say to you, look, we need to get out of Kiev now, or we need to get out of the hotel and go to a bunker, because you, you want, as a reporter, <laughs> to be there to see what is happening, but also your safety is really important. Yeah, I mean, they've tried that a couple of times, but um, I think, yeah, they, they, they know what, they know how much I'll actually do, um, <laughs> and whether I'll go into how the much bunker. you'll actually so listen to they're, they, they, no, they, they're, they're, they're very supportive. They make suggestions like you might want to get to the bunker. Um, uh, we, we, we play it as a team very much. So we were going into a hairy situation just the other day and we, we agreed that, you know, if any one of us felt that uh, we were crossing a line, that, you know, we would pull back as a team without sort of... The thing is, you can't have, you can't have split decision-making in a team like that. If, if, if yeah. one person is panicking and freaking out or another person is pushing it too far, it can, you know, things can break down very quickly. So it's very important that you're on the same page for that. Um, but that might not always extend to me going to the bunker when I want to see what's happening. When, over the last three weeks, when's been the moment when you've been most worried about your safety? Um, I think it was possibly, it, it's, it's moments of anticipation. I haven't been like really, I haven't had a moment of like huge fear yet in an incident. It's more been things like, um, seeing the first satellite images of that convoy coming towards Keith. I will confess that a sort of slight chill ran through me, um, but the same thing happened when um, there was. We've had certain warnings about certain things being hit, or I think also the realization on the eve of the invasion that this was probably actually going to happen, and that kind of just sinks in. So it's really when you're waiting for something to happen that hasn't happened yet, and you just have that moment of wondering, you know, how exactly it's it's going to pan out, um, rather than when you're in the moment dealing with it, and you've kind of got something to do. And how does this covering this war compared to uh, previous conflicts that you've covered, um, both both mm. in the sort of the practicalities of it, but also what you've you've seen and witnessed uh, over the last three weeks? I mean, I don't think I've ever. Sarah, I have been thinking this through why it was different when it started because we all agreed um, that it it was different to anything we, you know, Anthony Lloyd and myself were having this conversation. So this is different. And I think it's really because uh, I think I've never been at the pointy end 
of a, a massive conventional army that was hostile both to the people I was amongst and to me and my country. So, for example, I've covered, like, you know, the, the big um, Western invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan, um, where obviously that was an American-led force um, that was not hostile to me, even if it was hostile to some of the population I was with, or not necessarily to the population, but the regime. Um, and obviously the knowledge of um, conflicts like Syria, having seen what the Russian bombardment did there and how little regard they have for civilians, um, that is very different because um, the although there have been hideous American, uh, sorry, civilian casualties in American prosecuted wars, I, I, I haven't seen before this deliberate um, targeting of civilians such a, of the kind that we saw the other day where they quite clearly deliberately uh, shelled the path that civilians were trying to get out of an area in and that is that's pretty chilling if you you know think of what is to come and what our ambitions are towards this country um, when, when I'm going been going through um, uh, Kiev you see all these barricades that have been set up some of them very robust and very official with concrete and um, sort of steel girders crisscrossing as they call them hedgehogs and they stop um, tanks getting past but then you've got all the kind of more informal barriers set up by volunteers and and, and you know who are ready to fight um, for their country and you think my god you know once the Russians are in to Kiev they're going to have to fight street to street to take it it's going to get very very nasty and given that this is an army that um, doesn't seem to care about unleashing heavy artillery on civilians um, that that could look very very grim indeed so that is different but also um, the uh, I think the sort of esprit de corps of the Ukrainians is quite unique um, in that they have the most wonderful kind of dark sense of humour about it all um, but also this in, uh, extraordinary determination to you know stand and fight and I don't think I've ever really seen that uh, on this level ever in any conflict Yeah it really it really has been quite something um, is it right you've you've been sent a photo from a 67-year-old who's who's in his military <laughs> fatigues and, and ready to fight. Yeah, that's right. So um, uh, Igor is my um, my friend from the Tatarka um, Territory of Defence Force. Um, I'd, I'd met the guys up there a few days before, um, but not but not Igor. And then we went back one day, and he popped up, and he was wearing a, a sheepskin coat, and he was a bit. It was a, it had been donated by a family in the area, so you know everyone was giving stuff to, to their defence force. And he got this coat, and he was a bit worried um, that it was uh, a bit unisex. He said. Um, so when I put, him, <laughs> put a picture of him wearing it in the paper, he he and sent it to him. He um, he replied, um, "What well, I'm an international fa- fashion icon now." But he just sent me this morning a picture of him wearing proper fatigues, and he's asking me what what I think of the, the change of outfit. So um, it's nice to have these running to be able to keep up with the people you meet in this way. You know, everyone's got WhatsApp, so we can send each other photographs and comments and find out how people are doing, even when you can't physically get to where they are. Amazingly, Catherine. 
um, the technology is held up. Explain why you think that is, that we are, you're, you're still able to use conventional phones and, and 3G and so on. Yeah, um, I mean, I think there's a couple of reasons. So, again, we assumed that they would bring it down completely straight away. Um, we've had some reports that actually uh, some of the mercenaries that the Russians uh, are using as special forces to try and... Um, knock off members of the uh, Ukrainian government, you know, leaders uh, of the Ukrainian government, have actually been trying to use their cell phone signals to locate them in order to um, kill them. And so that, that may be plausibly be one reason. Um, I've also just seen a, a fascinating report this morning from Bellingcat, um, which, uh, which says that the, that the Russian secure system, military secure system for relaying information, has gone down, um, and therefore they were able to intercept the uh, cell phone conversation about the death of a very senior commander. And they said that the reason that um, had gone down was, despite being secure, it relies on 3G and 4G masks. Um, but but the Russians have taken those down around Kharkiv, so they essentially blew up their own communication system. And, and I'm hoping that they learn something from this, and it means that they don't take mine down because it's. Um, it's made my job a great deal easier to have that rather than have to be on a sat phone all the time, which, for example, you can't use in a bunker because you need a straight line to the sky. Um, so, yeah, so long may it continue. It's interesting. So Bill's just messaged in saying, um, uh, where do the ordinary people of Ukraine get their information from these days? Which I suppose it's slightly connected. If, if they are still able to what, get on their phones and read the news, but then... Uh, Ukrainian media organisations still able to operate. We saw the obviously the the um, the TV mask which was targeted. How are Ukrainians getting yeah. their, their their information? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that obviously the uh, targeting of the TV mask was an attempt to take information off um, off the airwaves. But I think it also it's kind of a fail on on the part of the Russians to understand. Uh, the, the information market in Ukraine, which is that most people use their phones, and so they're they're looking at reports that get circulated on like Telegram. They use a lot here, um, more than WhatsApp, which you know I would use uh, more. Um, and they they trade in uh, local reports, which yes, there are still amazingly brave local journalists uh, working. A couple of whom have been killed. Um, once whilst working as journalist, another who was fighting, who obviously stopped working as journalist in order to do that. Um, so there are local outlets. There are uh, there are Ukrainian language services uh, with you know the BBC with uh, Radio Free Europe, um, and then there's translation of. Um, you know, of foreign reports of the kind that we would produce are quickly getting translated into Ukrainian and, and sent oh, back. One of the most extraordinary ones, I have to say, was, it, was um, a thread on Twitter by an urban warfare expert on how to, how to resist um, a, a military invasion of your city if you have no training yourself. Um, and it was all about, you know, how, how, where to throw Molotov cocktails from, how to ambush stuff. That was immediately translated into Ukrainian and, and shared on all their <laughs> social media sure, networks. Sure. That's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, Damon's just messaged in, a message from Damon saying, is Catherine aware of any Britons who've come over to join the fighter? There's been a lot of discussion about that here. Have you come across any Brits who've, who've entered Ukraine? I haven't myself. Um, I am aware of some. I hear of it i'm not actually sort of where they would be coming in 
of the country at the moment, but I'm certainly aware of people who are in the UK and in Poland who are making plans to come. But um, I think the mixed messaging from the government has has um, is proving a little problematic for them. People are still trying to work out uh, after Liz Truss said that they should come or that she wouldn't stop them, then uh, some messages the other way around saying that, no, yeah, that would yeah, be yeah. a very bad idea. So I, I think uh, possibly pe- people are not that keen to be um, to be seen doing that until they've figured out what the consequences back home are. Catherine, this has been fascinating. I'm slightly conscious of time. I mean, um, we appreciate your time. The last thing I wanted to ask you um, is how, how do you get out and when do you make that decision? Um, well, I am. I'm probably going to be coming out briefly for tomorrow before, you know, regrouping, um, having some R and R, and coming back in. So it's not a question of. I, I think that, that that's why my colleague Richard is coming in, and I think what yeah. we've. I think it's already become clear to us that this is is this story is going to run and run, and there's no point, you know staying out here until you drop that of exhaustion yeah. that we actually are going, we have a duty to cover this for quite a long time to come. And I know that that's very disappointing to a lot of Ukrainian friends who ask me, you know, how long is this going to go on? And I'm thinking, well, months, when sometimes you don't want to say that in front of them um, because, you know, the fairy tale of, of, of their the threat of their resistance right now would be that it would all end and Putin would slink back to Moscow. But I, I fear it's just not going to... Um, happen as neatly as that so I'm anticipating spending quite a lot of time out here um, in the in the future that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box podcast don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday 10 till 1 on Times Radio and we bring you the best bits here on the podcast and if you're feeling particularly nice why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with bowl and branches organic cotton sheets in a recent customer survey 96 percent replied that bowl and branch sheets get softer with every wash start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come try their sheets with a 30 night guarantee plus get 15 percent off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.